You're listening to the Wealth Standard Podcast's Financial Friday, a dedicated show about how to apply principled theory to a financial strategy, getting you one step closer to financial freedom. All right, this is Financial Friday, and my guest today is Bob Fraser of Aspen Funds. He is the co-founder, and today we're going to be talking about mortgage note investing. So, Bob, welcome to the show. Thanks, Patrick. It's great to be here with you, and kudos to you for what you're doing and all this great education you're giving to these people. Well, I appreciate that, and thank you as well. You, you and your company were the one of the sponsors last year of the Cashflow Wealth Summit, and we appreciate that, appreciate the support, and I'm excited to get into some of the details of your presentation and your business today. Yeah, shoot. You know, the presentation I gave at the summit really talked about that investment isn't just, you know, the investment idea, that it's also the underlying business that orchestrates the investment. So the first part is really talking about, you know, your niche, why it exists, what the demand is, what the opportunity is, what the investment opportunity is, you know, what the idea is. But then we're going to segue toward the end and talk about, you know, your team and how you operate and look who's behind the curtains, because I think that says, a lot about you know the success of a company that's been in business as long as you guys have. So let's just start with the investment first. So tell us you know about note investing, whether it's private notes or non-private notes. Well, what we specialize in is performing notes on consumer homes. So we buy discounted notes that are performing. So this means they're you know a lot of times it's newly originated paper, seller finance paper. Sometimes it is people that have had their loans modified. And so they had it, they got in trouble, but then they got back on track. And so now it's good performing paper, but it sells at a significant discount. We love those discounts. We buy that paper, we aggregate that paper, and then we manage it and manage the cash flow. So it's really cash flow, cash flow based investing using retail residential mortgages. And that's why I think one aspect <clears throat> of just real estate in general is that you have you know, not necessarily a liquid collateral, but in a sense, everyone needs a place to live. And so it's a very in-demand collateral. So talk to us about why this market exists. Like, why wouldn't someone go and, you know, refinance in a conforming or a conventional type of loan? So loans are often modified. And this is people who, you know, FHA, for instance, is doing these big auctions and they're, they're selling billions of dollars in non-performing loans. Well, they're typically bought by hedge funds. And these hedge funds buy these non-performing assets and a certain percentage of them end up reperforming. So about a third, if you look at the auction results. So a lot, of, a lot of times they take possession of the property, but a lot of times they do not take possession of the property. They actually talk to the borrower. The borrower wants to stay in the home and they do a loan modification. They figure out what they can afford. They put that in place and the borrower starts paying again. That's one avenue. It's a huge market. I think there's something like $30 billion in what's called troubled debt restructure held by U.S. banks that's in compliance, meaning it's in compliance with its modified terms. So it's, it's performing paper. It just went bad at one point in its life. That's one option. Another is the low balance area, which we love, the low balance loans. So these are loans under $100,000 on homes that are typically under $100,000. It's a place that the big boys don't want to play, okay? It's very complicated. If you have to take back the property, if you put in 20 grand in that to fix it up, well, that's a significant amount. Borrowers are typically, you know, have less wherewithal. So it's a much more problematic space. And the easiest thing to do is to avoid it. 
And so most of the big service providers out there, big funds and financial institutions avoid the low balance market. And we love the low balance market. The low balance market is in, a lot of times it's in the Midwest. And here I am in Kansas City in the Midwest, and it's a fantastic market. In fact, I argue that it's a non-cyclical market or significantly non-cyclical. Because if you look at the price of a home that's $100,000, the replacement cost for that home is typically close to 200 Wow. You know, and because of the price of lumber, labor, everything, yeah. right? Well, doesn't that argue that it has to go up in value at some point if the replacement cost? And you're not seeing a lot of new construction. So I've done a lot of financial analysis and economic analysis of the housing market. You've seen single family homes have been significantly underbuilt in the last decade since the crisis. Yeah. And so there's a shortage of single family homes. In my view, the affordable, low-balance homes are the ones that have the greatest upside and the least downside. So it's a market that not only do we love for its discounts, but also for its safety and its non-cyclical kind of behavior. That's an important piece. How did you arrive that this was like your bread and butter, that this was where you learned to play it was your niche? I mean, it makes sense because some of the questions I had when you were talking was, okay, well, banks have a ton of capital and they're, they're still able to access it relatively cheap through the Fed window. Like, why aren't they participating in this market, which I think you addressed. But my point was, you know, really getting into why you're in this specific niche. Was there a story behind that or was that kind of the opportunity from the get-go? Well, we actually got in to the space from the non-performing loan side. So we buy the non-performing loans. And it's actually a great space because we get to help people. We love, we're about people and we get to wipe out a massive amount of debt and help people stay in their homes. And we created a lot of this reperforming paper. So we help people stay in their homes. Well, that means they get a new loan and they start paying on the loan. Well, then what do you do with it? We discovered there was IRS issues. So we actually, a huge phantom income problem if you do a loan modification. I won't get into the technical details, but we had to sell it. And realizing that, and at the same time, I had a good friend come to me and say, Bob, I have a settlement. I have an inheritance. I have, you know, a nice chunk of change. How do I earn income? This was, you know, six years ago. I'm thinking, well, good luck, buddy. I mean, where do you really go to get good, safe income? In the public markets, it, it just doesn't exist, Patrick. And not that's safe and not that's non-volatile, right? And I said, well, I could certainly create that for you by buying these, you know, these assets that are secured, they're at a discount, they have a lot of safety in them. And I said, let's put together a fund. So we put together an income fund based on loan modifications and learned to manage that very effectively. And you know, I've done real well for our investors. So we got in, we're wanting to help people and wanting to solve an income need that's a really tough need. Today, I think one of the biggest challenges, you know, as, our, as the stock market is, the rally has been fantastic. A lot of people have made money in the rally, but it's getting a little long in the tooth. How much further is it going to go? I'm a computer scientist by background, so I'm the super kind of math nerd. Mm-hmm. And I can show that correlations, that, that future earnings and future growth in the stock market is highly correlated to P.E. ratios, right? Mm-hmm. Inversely correlated. And so the higher the P.E. ratio, the lower the expected earnings 10 years out. Well, at a 35 P.E. ratio, or roughly we're around a 30, I believe, right now, you can be expected to earn about 1% in the stock market. So over the next 10 years, annualized, well, that's not that attractive. Then you look at the bond market, that's not very attractive. You know, so where are you going to go? And even, you know, with the softness in the housing market now, a lot of people are saying, okay, well, even alternatives, which most alternatives are based in real estate, are they, is that getting long in the tooth? 
And I've been in this market, I've been in the investing world for 30 plus years, and I've seen several real estate crashes. So what's to say this isn't going to happen again? So you're really looking for counter-cyclical or non-cyclical investments, in my opinion. That's another thing that when we designed this, when we went after this space and after this strategy, we are looking for something that is non-cyclical. And so the bread and butter homes are non-cyclical, but I'll give you a tip. What is the greatest non-cyclical thing out there in the real estate world is owner-occupied real estate. Okay, a lot of the guys that have lost money were in hard money loans. And this is fix and flip loans, developer loans, right? Construction loans. Mm -hmm. Well, what's the value in a housing crash of a piece of partially developed land? (laughs) It disappears, right? Mm -hmm. But what's the value of a home that you're currently living in, right? Patrick, if you experience negative equity in your home, the Zillow says the paper value of your home goes down. Are you going to hand the keys back to your lender? No, you're not. And people don't do that. So investment real estate, the first thing people do is send back when they have trouble, they send back, they just give the keys to the lender. So it's your problem now, mm-hmm. not with owner-occupied real estate. They do not. So that's what we buy is owner-occupied real estate. It's uber sticky. Mm-hmm. And in my world, home equity is less important than the job market. I can show you correlate defaults, correlate not to the price of equity, but to the job market. I want to bring something up because I think sometimes we have a tendency, especially me, because I have a background in economics where, you know, financial models are very straightforward and have, you know, in a sense, absolute assumptions. And something that surprised me, you know, based on a a conversation I had with the chief economist of Fannie Mae, I had a really long dinner with him a few years ago. And it it was amazing. But one of the things he told me was that they weren't communicating well with their borrowers. And they experienced that people actually left their homes and they weren't in default. And what they did is they correlated the demise of Fannie Mae, that the fact that Fannie Mae went under, right, or went into bankruptcy or receivership to them no longer having a mortgage, therefore they couldn't stay in their home. Now, it doesn't make sense to you and I, right, because, you know, we understand certain elements of finance right? But sometimes human behavior is outside of that rational line of thinking. So nonetheless, they communicated with their borrowers and they communicate what was going on. They started to do surveys and they continue to do it. And they use artificial intelligence as well now. And they're able to really kind of understand how to price risk in. They wouldn't have been able to experience, able to do before the financial crisis. I look at really where you find safety in anything. I would say, you know, is more lens to the expertise that you have and the experience that you have. And it sounds like you found that because number one, you're in a market that isn't that volatile. And you also have people that typically will stay in homes for a really long period of time, which is kind of the Midwest sector. And, you know, oftentimes it's easy because that's when you know what your assumptions are, you know what you need to do to get a a rate of return, you know, you need to buy at, you know, how to communicate with people. Because I'm assuming with what you said, which I want to make sure the listeners caught is you know you initially worked in the non-performing space and the non-performing space was people weren't paying their mortgages but you right. figured out ways and you have a system where you spoke to them and you modified the terms of their loan so that it was affordable they recommitted and now it's performing because they're making payments on it okay yeah. and i think that is an insanely valuable piece of this it's not you know, it's a 5% you know, mortgage at $50,000 and you buy it at discount for 40, right? It's more of like, okay, you have a system in place in which you're communicating to the people. 
they're actually going to be paying you, <laughs> which yeah. I think is, you know, I think that's a, one of the most valuable pieces of this puzzle. Yeah, it's so true. I was actually talking with a New York investor a year ago, and he said one of his top investments was loans on pets. <laughs> I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> Only a New York financier. And who's going to default on their dog and get their dog repossessed? <laughs> <laughs> so, oh you know, you, you let your car be repossessed before you let your dog be repossessed. For sure. So, you, you probably let your home go before you let your dog go. <laughs> so what you're pointing out, you'd want something, you want a little bit of the emotions attached to something as well. And I think we've all seen the financial models, but, you know, I think a lot of the models out there the traditional bankers use is, is dumb, actually. And I can actually show you that's the, the reason I'm making money is because their models are incorrect. So I found a better way to do what they're doing. I found different ways to solve problems that they couldn't figure out. So there's a lot of opportunity by building better models. And we love having owner-occupied homes and helping people stay in their homes. But it just creates something that's very, very, very sticky and not correlated to the home price entirely. So yeah, it's a great place to be. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion so far. So I am talking to Bob Fraser. He's the co-founder of Aspen Funds. And we'll be back in just a moment with our second segment where we get into Bob's business model and how Aspen Funds works. Are you looking for ways to generate consistent income that is not correlated to the volatile stock market? Real estate is one of the most powerful ways to generate income but most investors don't want to actively manage properties. Aspen Funds provides passive investments for accredited investors using a unique approach to real estate investing, real estate notes. Visit their website, aspenfunds.us to learn more about their current opportunities and be sure to check out their free webinar. Okay, so we're back. Thanks for some of our our sponsors of the podcast. Uh, We really appreciate them. So Bob, as I mentioned, this is an investment niche, an alternative type of investment where there's tons of opportunity and you've clearly articulated that. I think we both are on the same page in regards to what success is in any business. And I think this investment has an underlying business that operates it. So would you speak to the listeners and myself about you know, your experience in the business world and the team that you've put together to orchestrate this great opportunity? Sure. Actually, my background is, and I alluded to it in the first segment, was a computer scientist, but I ended up starting a company in 1995 that became one of the largest venture capitalized companies in the Midwest. It was a tech company and started in my attic with my sister-in-law and $100,000 from mom and grew to 300 employees and hired some of the best people in the city and learned a ton, frankly, by doing that. I learned a ton from the guy I hired to run my business, my president. I actually learned about a ton about what it takes to run a business by actually the guy who worked for me, but ended up winning in 2000, the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award, which is a big honor. And I've rubbed shoulders with some of the top entrepreneurs in the world as a result of that. It's interesting how many of them, I even have a quote from Richard Branson. He he said, you know, I've never been that interested in money. I've been more interested in ideas. And the best entrepreneurs are not bottom line focused. You'd be surprised. They're really solution focused. They want to make the biggest impact and make, you know, so it's just different than people can people think. Their greatest strength of entrepreneurs is often their greatest weakness. Can be. That's right. And that's true. 
And a lot of people who are the best entrepreneurs and having watched a number of venture capitalized companies, the guys who start the company rarely end up running the company. So that's just an absolute, it seems. But through all that, I've learned that people are the most important asset. They really are. And getting absolutely great people matters and is the key driver of success. Far none. Yeah, no question. And it's the right people in the right places, doing the right things, always on the same page. I look at your team and maybe you can comment on some of them and how you guys operate, but it sounds like they have extensive experience in banking and also in this niche. But there's also, from what I recall, there was some uh, project management and systems expertise as well. So can you talk to us about you know the different positions that exist in your business and how you guys operate? Yeah. Well, one of the first guys we hired early on in the non-performing shop that we did was a guy named Steve Grigoski. He's literally a banker. He is a 29-year bank veteran at the time we hired him with 15 years of experience running the workout shop in the bank. So he was the guy that when a bank loan went bad, he was the guy they handed the hot potato to. So he's super compliance-oriented. He's super knowledgeable. And he was the conference speaker. He literally was the guy that went to the loss mitigation conference. I'm sure you've (laughs) been to a lot of those conferences and loved them as much as I have. He was the speaker. He was the guy. Well, we hired him. And why not hire the best guy? And he's since built a team in Maryland of all bankers. We have seven staff, a full-time staff and part-time staff out there who basically handle all loss mitigation efforts and do a fantastic job. I mean, they know more about statutes and limitations issues, about bankruptcies, about foreclosures, which are different in every single state and the union than most lawyers do. And we make money primarily because we know how to buy and we know how to avoid the pitfalls. We know how to get deals done with people and at the same time helping people. And here we are, we're buying bad debt, but only 3% of the time, 3% of the time we end up foreclosing, three. That's skill. And what do you credit to like specifically? So you say skill, but what do you credit to like the sub-skill level? Be honest with you, it's exactly what you said. It's communication. We reach out to the borrower, we educate them, we put them in touch with home counselors uh, supplied by the government who tells them, talk to these people. You know, the biggest issue we have is getting them to talk to us. I mean, I I wish some of these borrowers would call us sometimes because we'll do miracles for them if they will talk to us. Well, they're afraid. They're afraid. They're afraid. And they they think that they don't have any answers, so they're not going to talk. And the truth is, if they will work with us, We'll do miracles for them. That's the key. But yeah, so we, we've hired a fantastic team and continue to hire a fantastic team. We, we're in this for the long haul and we want to grow to a very large company. I love scaling. I mean, I love scaling a business. It's the funnest thing on the planet, in my opinion. And you, well, it you says a lot about to do that with people. Exactly. And it sounds, you know, whenever you scale, I mean, we had a brief conversation before we started the podcast. I mean, it's easy to get a return with a one deal or two deals. But when you get to 10, 1,000, 2,000, 5,000, this is where I felt so strongly about the presentation I gave at the summit, the same summit you guys sponsored and, and presented at, was to you know the BI triangle that Robert Kiyosaki came up with or helped it to improve, which really talked about the successful operation of a business. And the smallest piece is the actual product or the investment itself, the underlying mission, values, systems, financials, and so forth is vital. But there's one element there, which I think is profound that I'm picking up on with you is the team. Because you know your title, I know, originally was the CEO and president, but it sounds like you have 
you know, essentially delegated a lot of those responsibilities to others, which I think is paramount to any business that wants to scale is to find those that are best at doing what they do, putting them in that position and then putting you or whatever other role is in the position where you're going to be the most valuable. Can you talk to that briefly? Yeah, absolutely. Having scaled a business from two people to 300 people, I learned that you only do that. You have to give up control and you're limited to what you can control. You'll never get bigger than that which you can control. And the truth is when I've got, I own a thousand notes today, I can't control. I I can't get my head around a thousand notes. Mm -hmm. I've got to have it subdivided. I've got a capital department. I've got a loss mitigation department. I got an acquisitions department. I'm not in control of any of those things. I just hired people who run those divisions and are doing a fantastic job doing that, right? So it's not just people. I'll tell you the other key to scaling is systems. And the key to quality, I I read a book uh, called Total Quality Management back in the 80s, back when Japan was ruling the world and the books all were about TQM and it was all about systems creating quality. So the keys besides getting the right people in the right spot is getting systems for everything. Everything is systematized. And that means a super high level of quality that's why McDonald's can make the hamburger that tastes the same regardless of whether you're in Singapore or in San Antonio, right? It tastes the same. Why? It's completely systematized. There's not a creative element in there. It's all done the way it's supposed to be done through training and systems. And so and that's where most entrepreneurs are not systems guys, right? They yeah. understand systems and the importance of them, but they don't follow them. And that's no ideas. <laughs> that's so true. And that's where, I, yeah, there's like an underlying foundation of a business that has to be systematized. There's another layer of it that can't be, and that's more the creative ideas yeah. adapting to markets and so forth. But it is. It's if you don't have those systems and you're trying to scale, it's a disaster waiting to happen. Yeah, it's absolutely true. So, and I'm a, I was actually a computer programmer for 20 years. So I what I did is built systems, and I built them to scale. And so I understand about building systems. But yeah, the creative element is also super important. But even that, there's a way to make creative, run shops of computer programmers and creatives. And there's a way to get them to do well. And you have to put boundaries around it, around the creative side, even. Well, it's fascinating to me, because one of one of the coaches I've had in the past, she was in charge of all the developers. She was vice president of development. And it was fascinating to talk to her about how they operated. And I think the tech world really has it down. And you see a lot of the business operation guys these days that are you know, essentially modeling what the tech world has come up with, whether it's you know, Scrum or Agile systems. I mean, there's, there's so many different ways to do it, but it basically is a uniform, quick, efficient way to get things done, which I think is just business in general. But because of tech, so many different moving parts and elements, that was really a requirement in order to make any type of tech project viable and successful. Yeah. How do you get a bunch of uber creative, independent minded people to all work together and like each other, you know, and it's magic for sure. So I find technology is our big helper too. It's just so easy. Here we are a thousand miles apart and we're communicating. My team does the same thing. You know, we communicate through technology. We use software platforms to manage all of our activity. Everything is systematized. I do analytics, all pulling data from the accounting reports to the servicer reports to everything. And I, from my home, I have knobs and dials on every aspect of the business. I have the same thing. It's like, the, there's so many different moving parts, but technology has made it so that you can pull up a dashboard and you can have all the different primary measurements that tell you whether things are going the way they should or not. Absolutely. Well, Bob, this has been a fascinating interview and I appreciate your time. Let's talk briefly about how people can get involved and 
learn more about Aspen Funds and some of your opportunities. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Our website is aspenfunds.us. That's really the best starting point there. There's a webinar. People can learn about what we do and why it's cool and how we do what we do, see our team, these kind of things. But best place to jump in and get started. Okay, sounds good. Now, is this restricted to accredited investors or are there opportunities for non-accredited investors? This is all accredited investors. So you understand the, the regulations as I do, and it's the way we were able to offer this. It, talking about it on podcasts and these kind of things is we have to enforce those kind of rules. Okay, awesome. And then we'll post all the links and so forth on thewillstandard.com as well as through social media. So if you're driving, don't try to write anything down. Just go to the website after, <laughs> after you get home or go to the office and pull up all the links there. Well, Bob, it's been a pleasure again. And thank you so much for joining us for one of our first Financial Friday episodes. And we'll make sure that we get the word out and that people can learn more about your business and how to make investments. It's been great to be here with you. And here's to a prosperous 2019 for you and all. Okay, likewise. All right, thanks. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Standard Podcast. Be sure to visit the show's official website, thewealthstandard.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service guest opinions are their own. If you require specific investing, financial, legal, tax, or any other specialized advice, please consult an appropriate professional. We welcome and appreciate reviews of the show. Head on over to iTunes or Stitcher to leave your review. And don't forget to subscribe to the show to get access to every new episode and exclusive interviews this season. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Oh,